This is the full interview from a segment from the Overdrive radio and podcast program. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. In the foreword to John Smale's excellent book, Formula One, The Australian and New Zealand Story, Australia's former world champion, Alan Jones, said, Formula One remains a game of chance. It is true that you make your own luck, but in Formula One, the house holds more of the cards than any casino, unquote. Getting to race in Formula One is not always like a Hollywood movie where the good guy suffers adversity but invariably conquers all. There are many sliding door moments where a decision helps you to progress or stalls your chance to fully shine. The life and times of a Formula One driver covers a wide range of people and situations. 24 Australians have raced in Formula One championship events. Tim Schenken was an Aussie who raced in the category in the early 70s. He competed in 36 championship events. He has continued an association and officiating with motor racing and has been awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia, OAM, for his efforts, and he joins us on the line now. G'day, Tim. Thanks very much for your time. David, good morning, and good morning to your listeners. When did you first get the bug? When, when did you become engrossed in motor racing? Well, it was at school. I went to school uh, in Melbourne, Camberwell, Gra- Camberwell Grammar School, and there was a boy there whose father raced hill climbs. And I went, he lived locally, I went around to his house and saw this little race car. It was um, powered by a motorcycle engine, and uh, a sort of light went on in my brain <laughs> and captured my imagination. So uh, I was bitten there and then. Mm. I went to some local hill climbs, I think Templestowe was probably the nearest, uh, with this uh, lad's father, and we helped him push start the car, I guess, and clean it. Well, I've forgotten now. And that was the start of it. Up to then, I was really just like any young kid, not really knowing where I was going, just wandering around meaningless, meaninglessly. And then a big event, the 1956 Australian Grand Prix? Yeah, 56 or 50, yeah, 56, I think it was the Olympic Grand Prix to Albert Park, which is odd because I've been involved, of course, um, uh, with the Grand Prix there since 1996. But uh, yes, I went there and stood, of course, the circuit ran in the opposite direction in those days, and I stood on the uh, golf course, it ran anti-clockwise, and I stood on the golf course there, separated from the race cars by a post and rail fence. I'm not sure that was going to help very much if uh, someone lost control, but it was wonderful, Sterling Mosh on all our locals, Stan Jones, um, Max Davison, Bridge Hunt, Doug Whiteford, John Roxburgh were all racing there. So it was, um, it just further excited me and further prompted my um, my interest in the sport. And you got a passion, you know, a respect for Moss, I think, Sterling Moss. Yes, he was, uh, he was my hero. A lot of people ask me, well, why wasn't it Jack Brabham? But at the time, I uh, was working in, uh, in Melbourne in the city and I used to go to a book uh, store called the uh, Technical Book uh, Company, and I always bought English motor magazines there. And, of course, uh, they were full of, of Sterling Moss, and hence my uh, enthusiasm there. And, in fact, I was lucky I got to know him quite well years, many, many years later when I was uh, uh, living in England, and um, I got to uh, visit him and stay in his house. So it was really something special. In fact, at the, at the race in uh, at Albert Park, I went into the paddock after the race and his car was there, 250 at Maserati, and had some stone chips on the front. So I managed to peel a 
some paint off that, put it into my autograph book, and then many years later I got him to sign it. <laughs> Do you still have that? I still have that, yes. I still have it. It's probably on the bookshelf behind me. I once went to a Maserati event where they had that car, the 56 Grand Prix car on display. A gentleman asked me to take a photo of it. I said, oh, it has a you know, significance to you. He said, I touched the wheel of that in the pits in 1956. <laughs> it was a time when you could engage more, couldn't you? You, were, you could get closer to that as you did as a young lad. Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, the, the pits was, uh, uh, or the paddock where the cars were kept was open. Uh, I don't recall, maybe there was a small charge getting in, but uh, it was free to the public. But it's like a lot of sports as things move on, of course, uh, they become more professional. Uh, the commercial side of um, uh, of every sport has become an important component. So all of those areas have over the years have closed up. Another racing driver in Australia didn't do Formula One. Kevin Bartlett raced his mother's Morris Minor. I think it was even a convertible. Did you take a similar path with your early motor racing with the family wheels? I did. My um, And those uh, listeners who are old enough might recall the manufacturer Simca. It was a, a French brand. And my mother had a Simca. And uh, I hadn't had my license long. I was a member of the local car club. And that car club used to run the odd event uh, at Calder. So uh, I went out there one uh, weekend. I told my mother I was going to a barbecue somewhere locally, probably Frankston, somewhere like that down on the beach. And I went to Calder. And in the morning, they had quarter-mile sprints, which you could do without a competition license. I didn't have a competition license at the time, so... I did the quarter-mile sprints and I stayed on in the afternoon just to watch some of my friends who had licences uh, racing. But I noticed as the cars were queuing up to go out onto the track to practice, no one was really checking. So I still had the number on the side of my car. So I just pulled up uh, in the queue and got out onto the track and thrashed around there and practised. And I thought, well, this is all pretty cool. And then afterwards, I saw the grid sheets on the secretary of the meeting's uh, window and sure enough, my name was there. So I lined up and did a race or two. I even won a cup, it's probably in the background there somewhere. In those days, the numbers, the competition numbers would have been put on the window with white water-based paint. So I wiped all that off and uh, went home. So no one was the wiser. Did mum ever find out? No, no, mum never found out. And uh, I don't think CAMS or Motorsport Australia ever found out as well. So... Thankfully, the statutes of limitation are going to um, save me from uh, ending up in front of the stewards. You do officiate. You would find a, a conflict of interest, wouldn't you, if a, <laughs> if a young lad tried to do that now? Yes, you're exactly right. Uh, but uh, motor racing, of course, is much better controlled now, much better managed. Uh, it was very amateur in those days. I think at the same race meeting, I helped out flag marshalling and, and you just stood out in the middle of a field with a... Mm. With the track passing you, you had no protection. You just had to keep your wits out about you and be ready to jump out of the way if anyone went off the track. But uh, we've progressed a long way since then. You were obviously quick early. Was that, Did you grasp the need for efficiency, not just hooning? Do you think that was part of your innate skills? Well, I have to say, first of all, I was never a natural race driver. I had to work at it. I mean, there are very few natural race drivers uh, who we've seen, Fangio, Clark, Jackie Stewart, Jochen Rin, 
There are there, of course, have been uh, many. But I, I I bought all the books. I, I bought a book called The Technique of Motor Racing, which was a book written about how to go how to race. And I read these things uh, cover to cover. There are, of course, articles in all sorts of magazines along the same lines. So I, I knew the basics of it all. You went on hill climb, your early experience with the, your friend and his father. You went on and won the 1965 Australian Hill Climb Championship. What were you driving? Well, that was interesting because the, what the vehicle I was driving sort of upset the establishment. Um, most of the in the day, I'm just trying to remember the name. You had Lex Davison and Stan Jones hill climbing. Bruce Walton was the, was a star at the time, and they all had sort of Cooper-based cars with uh, race tyres, with big, probably thousand cc, eleven hundred cc motorcycle engines. But a friend of my brother's built a go kart with a Speedway JAP engine, three speed gearbox, no suspension, exactly the same as a, a go kart, direct steering. But for power to weight ratio, it was uh, it was very good, and I was um, I started hill climbing this, and winning hill climbs, fastest time of the day, um, class records, upsetting the establishment. And interesting enough, of course, you couldn't buy any sort of competition tire for for a go kart in those days. So we used wheelbarrow tires, and on the side was inscribed maximum speed five miles an hour. But it was quick, it was nimble, the tracks are very narrow. Of course, this is being a small car made for full use of that. And I won the Australian Hill Climb Championship in 65. I beat Colin Bond, who had a proper race car. He had a, I think it was a Lynx, with a uh, Peugeot supercharged Peugeot engine running on race tyres. So I, uh, whenever I see Colin, I remind him uh, that. Later, and we'll come to that, get into uh, building of cars and that. Did, did the engineering side of it feel good to you? you know, did you feel that that was a, a part you enjoyed, but also something that helped you in your career? I'm not sure I enjoyed it, but it was um, it was a necessity, of course, because you didn't have, you weren't racing cars with uh, lots of mechanics and a full team behind you. So in the cars I owned, I had a Lotus 18 in my early days here. Uh, so you had to prepare it yourself. So I was interested in the mechanics, mechanical side in a way, but um, uh, that was just out of necessity. That was the path to the thrill of racing. Yes. Well, well, as I say, you. I mean, later on I had uh, mechanics working for me or working for the teams I drove for, but in the early days you had to prepare the cars yourself. You talked about the teams and you mentioned Lex Davison. You were nearly to join his team a Curie, Australia, but tragedy struck. What happened there? Yes, that was uh, that was a, a, a tough time for me. I was a young lad. Lex had asked me to join the team. Uh, I went to visit him. Um, I think he had a, a place in uh, North Melbourne. Uh, he was involved in the shoe business, and he asked uh, me to join the team. He was looking at retiring. He'd already taken under his wings another uh, local lad, Rocky Trasize. And Lex was planning to retire. Rocky would take over that role. And then I was coming on behind. But unfortunately, Sandown, uh, Lex lost his life there, 64, maybe 65. The following weekend, it was a round of the Tasman Championship. The following weekend was a race in Longford, in uh, just outside Launceston. The family, the Davison family, decided that uh, Rocky would drive uh, Lex's car. 
which uh, Rocky did, but then he had an accident and he was, uh, and he unfortunately was killed there. The weekend after that, I was racing my Lotus 18 under the Acuri Australi name at uh, Calder. So there was a big fuss in the media about, you know, this is going to be the three-time, three-weekends, three three fatalities, uh, but I survived. Did you have great trepidation going into that event? How did you feel? No, I didn't have any trepidation, but I did feel, what I said, you know, had the media, the, the media attention was quite intense and I, I was not used to any of that. So uh, that sort of uh, was hard to deal with, but um, I moved on. I moved on. I often wonder whether the great thing about a driver like that is if you have this attention around you, be it struggling to get the car going or what, and then the media, whether one of the real skills is to be able to turn that off when you're driving. Are you the sort of person that can then focus on the task in hand? Yes, absolutely. You know, if you're going to be a, a top-line racing driver, you've got to um, uh, you, you've got to be concentrating 100% on your driving. So uh, anything else, uh, certainly on the way up, so, um, uh, certainly nothing else comes into your mind. So once you get into the car, and after a while, getting into a race car just feels like sitting in a lounge chair at home. You, you just slip in at all. Everything is there in in place. Um, and uh, any outside concerns um, uh, go out the window. You know, a lot of people uh, say to me, you know, during the 70s, that was a tough time racing. You were doing Formula One, a lot of fatalities. You know, didn't this affect you? But, you know, you have this rather naive view that it's not going to happen to you. Uh, because, to be honest, if you thought you were going to get hurt or get killed, you, you wouldn't be doing it. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be sitting in the car. It's actually an attitude many people driving on the road have and uh, <laughs> yes. but, um, missed, missed the point in that regard. Yeah. You, you then, I think you had some patronage, if you like, from someone like Dave and McQuire. Now, I love those characters of that time. Is it fair to say that they were people that weren't just looking at it in the sense of what's in it for me, but were genuinely there to encourage and enjoy the success of other people's talent? Yes, I think that uh, applied to Lex Davidson as well, but David Mackay, yes, he sort of took a bit of an interest in my racing. I, I took my Lotus 18 up to uh, Warwick Farm and um, I raced there. Um, I had, I think I had some sort of gearbox problem or failure, so I didn't finish the race. And David was walking around chatting to the drivers, um, the younger ones, uh, uh, after the race, and he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I, I really want to be a, a Grand Prix driver. I want to be an international racing driver. And uh, he said, well, the only way you're going to do that uh, is to go to Europe. And I had been thinking about that at the time. This was 65, early 65. And that sort of tipped me to make the decision I'll definitely go. So um, I got onto a, uh, got on a boat here in, uh, in Melbourne, in Port Melbourne, and sailed off to uh, Southampton with a one-way ticket. How long did the boat trip take? The boat trip was five weeks. And at that time, flying was just starting to come in. The 707 had arrived and Qantas were flying. I think they called it, the, or they still do, the kangaroo route um, to London. But I'd already booked my berth on the boat and uh, I'm not sure 
I thought much about flying. It was probably quite expensive as well, more expensive than certainly uh, sailing. People have an image of the racing driver. You've got over there, life of luxury, was it? But, uh, where, what were the early <laughs> days like? No, certainly not a life of luxury. In fact, now when I look back, I wonder, you know, how did I do all of this? But um, I arrived in uh, in Southampton, actually, and ended up uh, in Earl's Court. In those days, that was called Kangaroo Valley, or the Australians were New Zealanders were, were, were living there. And I got a job and I uh, I bought a, a, an old race car, a Formula 3 car. It was a couple of years old, but I was living in a flat, um, one bedroom, four mattresses on the floor and four of us, uh, four of us uh, sleeping there. But, you know, you if you're, you're living a dream, I suppose, and there's no other word for it, um, that was just, it was only there for sleeping because you got up, uh, after you had breakfast, you're out, you're working. And every, each evening, you're working on your race car, coming home, sleeping, and then at the weekends, uh, going off racing somewhere. Were the others car racers or were they just a shared house, a shared room? <laughs> shared room. Now, they're also uh, into racing. Mechanics, they were. I think I had an Australian, uh, one Australian there, John Whitehouse, who was uh, racing, but the other two, uh, the other two were race mechanics. You then, uh, I believe, met Rodney Bloor from Manchester, and I think there was a, a description of you as having precocious talent. Now, talent is clearly there. Is there any element of truth to the word precocious? <laughs> yes, probably. Uh, but I was racing a, a two- or three-year-old Formula 3 car in 67, and I, um, I was lucky I kept it. Well, let me explain that. I worked for a company called The Checkered Flag, which sold sports cars uh, in Chiswick in London, and they had a race team, and they used to run the, what was called the work-supported Formula 3 Brabham team. Um, so they had a little workshop uh, in the Arches, Stamford Brook Arches, and I kept my race car there. And so I updated. They had a – there was a the chap who was running the team. His name was Chas Beatty. He was a designer and – the cars were properly prepared, of course, with proper with with race mechanics. But uh, uh, they would throw out parts, bits and pieces they'd replace, and I'd be through the rubbish bin looking to see what they were throwing out and using those parts on my. It was a Lotus Twenty Two, and I made a lot of modifications to it. So, it actually, in '67, it went a lot quicker than what a Lotus Twenty Two would normally go. Uh, so I sort of got the attention of a, a number of uh, team uh, owners. But it really clicked for me in 1968 because they introduced Formula Ford in England. And I went and did a test for a local manufacturer there, uh, Merlin Race Cars. And uh, they decided to lend me, a, as a result of the test, a car with gearbox. They found me someone to supply an engine and maintain an engine. So in 68, I started um, racing Formula Ford. And to be honest, I just, uh, not to be honest, to be proud yes i won every i won everything uh basically everything in that formula ford car and it wasn't long before easter came up and rodney Bloor, as you mentioned had noticed me running formula ford and asked if i'd be interested in driving formula three for him and he had a proper team with the mechanic uh well that proper team being a a, a car and a trailer and a mechanic and a race car so i started racing that for him and at the end of the year i won the formula ford and uh, for the British Championships for Formula Ford and the British Formula 3 Championships. So I was on the way. It was an outstanding record. 
Well, it was it was sixty eight races. Yeah, sixty it was nineteen sixty eight. Sixty eight races, and I won forty eight of them. But you know, there were people say, "Well, how's that possible? There are only fifty two weekends in a year." But in fact, you could, in those days the races were uh, you could do a race uh, in one day. So you had uh, practice and racing on Saturday at say Silverstone, and then went to Brands Hatch and uh, the same on Sunday. So doing Formula Ford and Formula Three, you had sometimes two heats and a final. You could uh, soon rack up the races. It must have been a wonderful fillip for you to get into a, mo- a more professional team. Did you? Did that give your confidence a chance to soar? Did that uh, give you that sense of your stepping up? I certainly realised I was stepping up because Formula Three it was the stepping stone to Formula One. You did Formula Three, Formula Two, and then Formula One, and that uh, was the way you. Uh, progressed in, in, in motor racing in those days and pretty much the same today. Um, but I prepared my own Formula Ford car, so I still and transported that around, so I still had that uh, role. And then I was driving so-called, well, it was professionally because I was getting a percentage of the prize money and I'd, uh, I had stopped um, uh, working and I could, uh, I could keep myself going, living on the floor, or sleeping in a a partner with with um in a flat with four others um i could keep myself going for the year that must have felt good that must have felt that you you know you're starting to achieve what you thought you you potentially could yes that's right uh i was i was riding on the crest of a wave for that whole year the different cars were were they significantly different to drive? A, a Formula Ford versus a Formula Three. You stepped out of one into another. Was uh, that an, an easy adjustment? Now, the big difference was the Formula Ford had to run on road tires. There was a, a control tire, it was a Firestone road tire, and the Formula Three car was a was a, a proper racing tire. So the big difference, or two differences, I suppose. Uh, first of all, the Formula Ford car only revved to about four thousand. Uh, sorry, six six and a half thousand RPM on road tyres. But you got into the Formula Three car, you noticed immediately how direct the steering was. And in those days, there were a thousand cc engine running through a, a single carburetor, revving to ten thousand RPM. So it was like a like a Singer sewing machine <laughs> electric motor, just went very high. So they were the they were the two differences. Both were, and uh, both were. Um, uh, you were limited to four-speed gearboxes, whereas the Formula Ford car you had some torque. The Formula Three car you uh, had no torque, and you had to be running at as uh, maximum revs as, as much as possible. So there was a there was a certain amount of skill in making sure you had the right gear ratios for the Formula Three car. Yes, it's much more. In many sort of club events, people get a big V eight and. You know, they might not be quite as efficient going through a corner, but they feel good because they can plant their foot. I once raced a Toyota Prius, and it taught me that if you lost 5K, you were aware of it and you lost it forever. I guess <laughs> a, a, a no-torque car might be similar to that, well, a very low-torque car. Yes. Um, in fact, you have to be very efficient with your racing, both of them to a certain extent, but more with the Formula 3 car because it didn't have a lot of power, had 100 and probably 110 brake horsepower. You had to be very efficient with your driving, so you didn't slide the car. It was probably a little bit like karting is today. You needed to be right on the edge of sliding, 
uh, to get the most out of it. The moment the car started to slide, then you just lost speed. It is a science, isn't it? It's not just bravado. Well, uh, yeah, I, I guess you're right. It is science. But you learn these things very quickly. And, of course, I was, I was living motor racing 24 hours a day. I'm almost still doing it. Um, so, uh, so you learn these things quickly and you just sharpen your skills, hone your skills. There's also race craft. Yes. You're not just yes. the ideal isolated corner, but having other vehicles around you. Yeah, certainly in Formula 3, because that was a very popular, it's, it still is, but it was very strong, so you had fields, so you could have a field of 50 cars. Um, so slipstreaming was important. You didn't have any aerodynamics on these cars. But the boys at the front, and I'm talking about Emerson Fittipaldi and uh, uh, Ronnie Peterson were a, a couple of the guys I was racing against. You sort of understood this, so... You race uh, into the first part of the race. You work together, so you use the slipstream together. You didn't try to outbreak your uh, the other driver. So you were you had to get away from the field because if you started to slow up, instead of fighting with maybe two or three other drivers, you were fighting with ten. Mm. So and once you got away from the field, then you had to work on how you were going to win the race, where to be uh, on the track because you'd normally slipstream to get into the lead prior to the last corner. So you had to work that out. And, uh, and of course, the, you ended up with all of you knew the same, what the same answer was. So it was a bit of messing around on the last lap uh, to get it right. It's planning. It's race craft that I think a lot of people may not uh, appreciate to the full extent. Yes, it is exactly uh, race craft. And, uh, you also learn to look after your tyres. I mean, that's a big factor today in, in any motor racing is looking after your tyres. Mm. You can uh, overstress them very early and uh, then you haven't got the speed at the end. Towards the end of 1970, uh, you had the chance and took the chance to go into uh, the Tommaso built by Williams Formula One car. What were the circumstances? Again, a bit of a tragedy. Well, it was because Frank, uh, Frank Williams... Um, uh, he had uh, a young English driver, Piers Courage, who was part of the Courage Brewery Group, part of the family, uh, and he was tragically killed at Zandvoort in Holland in 1970, and I was already doing Formula uh, Formula 2, which was the next step up, of course, in Formula 3, um, and I was looking at opportunities to uh, do Formula 1. I was hoping to go with Brabham's because I was driving from 69 uh, I was driving one of their cars in Formula 3 and then in Formula 2. Um, and uh, after Pierre's accident and Frank saying he was going to continue racing, I went to see him and to see if uh, he'd um, employ me or use me as his, uh, as his next driver. So that, I had to, that was a hard thing to do. Um, took a deep breath to go and see him, but um, he took me on. So I did four Grand Prix uh, with him that, uh, that year. We look at the proficiency of which they're developed now. This was a little bit, uh, what should I say, coarser vehicle. Well, it was. It was. It was the, the first racing car that that the Di Tommaso designer had uh, built. Had designed. He was uh, working um, uh, Di Tommaso building road cars. So it was the first race car he had designed. 
So it was not in the same standard or uh, as, say, Lotus or Brabham or any of the other manufacturers at the time. But it was a start. Mm. And it gave me an opportunity to display and uh, all the teams knew that it wasn't uh, the quickest car on the grid. So it gave me an opportunity to, to display my skills. And I did the odd practice session where it was wet, which is a great equaliser of cars. And I was uh, reasonably competitive. So at the end of that year, I picked up Jack Brabham retired and I picked up the drive with Brabham's in 71. Before we get to that one, it, it was, I think, an uncomfortable car to some degree, the, 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 the Tommaso. It, was, it wasn't one that you fitted like a glove. No, you're exactly right. And in fact, uh, you normally have, there was a, a monocoque, aluminium monocoque chassis, and you normally have cutouts for your elbows. But um, so that you could turn the wheel without your elbows hitting the uh, side. But um, uh, this didn't have the cutouts. So you either had your right elbow sitting on top of the monocoque or the left one. Uh, so it, it was it was uh, awkward in that respect to drive. Oh, your elbow hanging out the door. That's what um, we used to do in panel vans or something, wasn't it? <laughs> Almost. You didn't have a cigarette in your hand, <laughs> although that might have been sponsorship there. Was it that year that Jochen Rint died? I think you knew him, and did that affect you? Yes, that was um, you know, Jochen was a hero of mine. I'd watched him racing when uh, he came out to Australia in the um, when I was still living here um, in the Tasman series, and then I was racing against him in Formula Two. So that was a monster. I think that was my second race. Uh, and he was tragically killed there. And I, I, I have to say that uh, deeply affected me because you, you, here's something I'd been dreaming of doing. I was doing Formula One racing. This was, you know, I was on my way. I felt that I was on my way. And then uh, a hero of mine was killed at the same race meeting. So that was, um, and you've got no one to turn to. You're on your own, really. I really talked to Frank Williams about it. You're, it's all bottled up inside you that, you know, once you get in the car and start driving, this all goes out out, uh, out of your mind. I had a chance to ask a question of Rod Laver one time and noted that the modern tennis player has psychologists and all that around, and how did he cope? And I think he reflected the situation you just said, that there, there wasn't a lot there, perhaps uh, family or that, that really you had to take what you had and, and, and adjust accordingly. Well, I didn't even have a family to talk to because my parents were living uh, in Australia. I was in uh, Europe on my own, um, so I really didn't have anyone to turn to. But you know, if you look at all sport, the way it's progressed, even from the 70s to today, whether you're talking football or tennis or soccer, it's very, very different. We were At the time we were racing, of course, that was the state of the art. That was the pinnacle then, mm. but uh, nothing stays still. Did you feel lonely? Did you feel isolated at times? Did, uh, was that part and parcel of you learning from that experience? You mean the experience of, of Monza? And you know, well, just, just a general, you know, being over there, being on your own, living four people in one bedroom sort of stuff. Did, did that become a little bit of homesickness or in, in any way? Well, it was never homesickness, but you just had to work things out yourself. Mm. And I was no different to all the other the race drivers uh, on their way up. Of course, drivers like Graham Hill and uh, Jackie Stewart, they had some management around them, but probably only in the terms of sponsorship and com the commercial side. But um, mm. 
uh, you just have to deal with it. You sort of find your own way. Technologically, you, you mentioned that you know the Formula Three had no aerodynamics. You were coming into the world of Formula One with much wider, bigger tyres and and more aerodynamics. Did you feel that change significantly? Well, it was a step, really, because Formula Three. The reason you didn't have any aerodynamics was because the the engine wasn't powerful enough to um, yeah. to take advantage of. Uh, of going slightly slower on the straights and, and or slower on the straights and faster through the corners. But when I went into, stepped into Formula 2 in 1970, of course, you had the aerodynamics in those cars. Those cars had probably double the brake horsepower, 250, 280 brake horsepower. So one was learning already uh, how you adjusted the car and how you drove the car with uh, with the download. Of course, then when you got into Formula 1, the wings were bigger, the tyres were wider, and that was an, uh, and that was another step up. And I mean, we thought we had a lot of grip and a lot of aerodynamic download. But when you look at uh, a Formula One car today, we were just touching on the surface, just scratching the surface. Yeah, but nonetheless, it was a step. You were starting to get higher G forces. It must have been an interesting experience for you to to take that step up. It was certainly an interesting experience, and you learned very quickly. You couldn't follow cars closely in front because you lost the the um, the uh, the air, clean air to 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 the front wings and rear wings of your own car. But uh, where you did notice it was going to America and driving. Where uh, in Europe, most of the tracks are um, clockwise. You went to America, South America. Some of the circuits were anti-clockwise, so your muscles on your right hand side of your neck built up. And when you when you were the race <laughs> on an anti-clockwise circuit, you noticed half, partway through or towards the end of the race, your head was falling over. And the first time I experienced that, I wanted I couldn't understand what was going wrong. Well, my head kept falling over. Sorry, I laugh with you, certainly not at you. I... <laughs> yeah, well, I'm laughing. And you know, I raced. I raced a lot. I was doing uh, Formula One, Formula Two, and sports car racing. So our training or, or fitness was developed driving as opposed to um, uh, as opposed to uh, in the gym running and, uh, mm. and weightlifting and all that sort of thing. Mm. In fact, I heard a I I, I related to a, a story that one of the War Brothers was uh, talking about. Uh, I heard him talk about he was interviewing Bradman, and uh, he said to uh, Bradman. Um, so what what sort of um, uh, what sort of exercise regime did you have um, in your day? And Bradman thought for a minute and said, "Just running between the wickets." <laughs> I thought the wonderful story, and I can relate to that. I know you did a huge amount in sports cars. You're very very successful. Win that in itself could be a whole story. I'll, I I might come back to that. But uh, you then did in '71 go to Brabham. Sir Jack, well, then Jack Brabham had just retired. Did you feel uh, honour or pressure when in taking on, not necessarily as the top driver, but a, a position in the Brabham team? No, I'm not sure I felt pressure because, you know, this is what I was aiming for always, to be a Grand Prix driver. I, to mm. be honest, I wanted to be a world champion, but I wanted to be a Grand Prix driver. So this was just part of the of the step into into uh, Formula One. I was confident that um, 
I could uh, hold my own, uh, uh, having driven the D Tommaso and recognising it wasn't it wasn't a Brabham or a Lutus. Um, so I went into uh, I went into uh, the Brabham team. I had as a teammate Graham Hill, who was uh, twice world champion. So there was certainly a challenge there, and I have to be honest in saying Graham had sort of reached his peak and was perhaps on the other side of that now. So um, was on his way. Uh, and looking at other things to do, uh, but it was he was a good yardstick to, uh, to 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 judge my own uh, performance. Plus, I was driving a year old car, and whereas Graham had the had uh, had a, a brand new car for race. Was he uh, helpful in his advice? Did you um, manage to converse with him a lot? Yes, I mean when you're teammates, of course, you just naturally. Uh, 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 converse a lot and talk about the racing, but the cars, the model cars, were completely different. So what ah. worked on his car mightn't have worked on mine. So I had a B, I forget what the number was now, but mine was the Jack Brabham car from 1970, whereas Graham was driving the the next uh, evolution of the Brabham. Um, I, I called it the Lobster Claw because it had the the front. If you look at a photograph of the of the car, you'll see it has had the um, front uh, um, or the radiators incorporated in pods either on both sides of the car at the front ahead of front wheels. But, uh, and of course, when you're racing, your first object is to beat your teammate mm. because normally you're in the same car as your teammate. So there was a direct comparison with you against your teammate. So your first object is to beat your teammate. The next one is to try and win the race. You actually finished higher in the championship then. Graham, didn't you? I did. It was uh, it was my best year in Formula One, and uh, I, I fitted well in with the team. Um, in fact, the mechanics, uh, Ron Dennis and Neil Trundle, uh, Ron Dennis went on to own McLaren in the end. Mm. So um, uh, I, I was with the right team at the right time, perhaps with a year old car, and it was it was um, it was a good year for me. Now, the team manager-owner at that stage was Ron Turnack, who was the technical whiz behind Brabham and, and he as partners, and Brabham always spoke very highly of him. Was he a natural team leader? Did he enjoy that? Well, you didn't really have a team manager. I guess you'd say uh, Ron was the team manager, but he also owned the company. He was a designer. And you went to the races with, um, two cars with probably three mechanics, maybe four mechanics, uh, and Ron Turanak and the drivers. So the, that that made up the team. Nothing like the, what you see today. Of course, it evolved uh, over time. So uh, you worked with, in my case, I worked with Ron on uh, trying to fine tune the car and get the car to 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 um, to uh, race properly. I mean, really, it doesn't often happen, but when you get the car right. It's like you being you and the car being one. Mm. It just works. You both work together, and um, uh, as 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 a single entity. It doesn't happen often, but when it does happen, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's a lovely expression. You met out on the track. Did you get an endorphin rush, or do you feel like it was a marriage made in heaven? <laughs> well, sort of a marriage made in heaven, if there's such a thing. But uh, um, you know, it, it, it just seems to it just it just you just work as one. It, it's 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 a great feeling. 
but as I say, it doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't happen that often, or didn't happen that often. And of course, it doesn't happen for very long because slowly your tires start to to go off. Maybe your front tires go off, or your rear tires go off, or the circuit changes. But uh, uh, when it's going for you, it's it's uh, it's good. There is a lot of detail in that, isn't there? We amateurs look at it and think, well, it's a corner and there's a way to do it. Yet there are immense changes over the period of a race. Is that something that a good driver really has to be very much attuned to? Yes, it just comes naturally, Mm. to be honest. As the circuit evolves, um, if if you can run in the first 10 of a, a Grand Prix, those drivers, it just comes naturally to choose the line and uh, or modify your your style to suit uh, the circumstances. I mean, it's interesting, in the wet, there used to be a, a big difference because on some circuits in the wet, circuits like Monza and Sandport, they were being used so often that the race line became polished. So when you raced in the wet, you drove off the race line. You drove around the outside of the corner because there was more grip there. And uh, I used to on occasions laughed out loud inside my helmet because you'd overtake a, 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 a younger guy who um, wasn't aware of this and he'd be sliding and sliding through the corner and you'd just drive around the outside of him. And I used to think, God, you know, this young guy used to say, oh, no wonder they pay them so much money and we'll talk about money shortly. No wonder they pay them so much money there if they can just drive around the outside of you. But it was nothing to do with the driving skill it was just knowing where to have your car placed you were with brabham and that was bought out by bernie eggleston who was more what the deal maker the marketer did that require a significant different approach from you in dealing with the the ownership well bernie i i'd known um i'd known sort of like you know a lot of people in racing you know thousands of people racing you don't know them that you haven't been to the house for afternoon tea but you you, you know them. And Bernie had been looking after uh, Jochen Rint. He'd been looking after Emerson Filippaldi. So I sort of knew Bernie, but uh, he bought the team from Ron Turanak. And Ron worked for Bernie for a short while, and this was during 1970. And uh, just chatting to Ron, Ron said, look, I'm not sure, you know, Bernie wants to be the, the designer, this, that and the other. And I don't think it's going to work. I don't think the team's going to go ahead with uh, with Bernie owning it. And then I spoke to, I had a meeting with Bernie to talk about driving for him for the following year. And Bernie wanted to sign me for two years. And I just wanted to sign for one year because I wasn't sure where the team was going to go based on what Ron had told me. And I didn't want to be stuck there for two years with, if Bernie was going to um, mess it up. On the other hand, Bernie was saying, well, I don't want to invest in you for one year, Tim, um, and then you go off somewhere else. So I need that continuity. So we, we, we fell out over that. You went to Surtees. John Surtees, I think, has the unusual situation of winning the World Motorbike Championship as well as Formula One. Was that, again, a different team management situation? Yeah, John... Um, John was a very difficult uh, person to work for, to drive for. And I think if you talk to any of the drivers uh, who have uh, driven for John, they would all tell you the same. He was 
a very strange character. I, 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 we've lost him now, so I don't want to uh, talk too toughly about him. But I had great difficulty getting on with him. And I drove with um, my teammate, was Mike Hale, who was the motorcycle of the um, rider of, of ever, I think. He's, he's, he, uh, he was uh, the, certainly the Rossi uh, of the time. But, um, and Mike would just turn up, drive and leave. I was more interested in the, not in physically in the mechanics, but in working in how, how I could get more out of the car. Uh, where John wanted to, uh, John Surtees wanted to dictate that. So we never really got on very well. It is a management thing, really, isn't it? It's a, the notion of teamwork, the notion of respecting other people's input, even if you might not Im- immediately agree with it. it. Perhaps Formula One teams there were still, that was one of the evolutions they were going through, not just mechanical and tyres and aerodynamics, but the whole management of, of, of a team as a corporate entity, not just as a, a few enthusiasts. Yes, that's that's true. But you you still had really the team owner, yeah, maybe a designer, but who would uh, more a draftsman who would remain back at the factory. So at the races, even in '72 and moving on, you had the team owner and the mechanics and the drivers, and 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 that's all. The the, the cars, apart from the overseas races, the cars were transported around um, Europe. Uh, with the mechanics, uh, with the mechanics uh, riding in the truck, so it was, as I said before, this was the state of the art. This is how it was, uh, but when you look at it today, it, it seems very, very amateur. Hour even a club racer would be more professional today than Formula One was in those days. You can't blame them for that. That's an evolution, isn't it? And, yes. And, and yes. you mentioned earlier, sponsorship started to become much more significant, and so that changed the potential for funding things. How did it mean for a driver? To, were you starting to get paid reasonable money? Well, we thought we were getting paid reasonable money, of course. When you look at, look back upon it uh, today, you'd say it was, you know, it was just loose change, but <laughs> I'm sure you mentioned Rod Laver. I'm sure Rod Laver looks at it the same way. Hmm. But uh, oh, I wouldn't complain, you know, when you compare the uh, cost of living in the in the seventies to today, you know, it bears no relationship, of course. Um, but sponsorship was more with the teams. Uh, I think Colin Chapman was really the first um, team owner to come up with sponsorship, and he had cigarette sponsorship, Gold Leaf Team Lotus. You might remember mm. Brabham's, and I think this was one of the concerns of Ron Turanac and why he sold the team was the sponsorship really came from Esso. Uh, and from Goodyear. Um, uh, so, um, and he didn't have the skills uh, nor the people around him to go to, to, to find sponsors. But uh, that was uh, that was becoming a, a necessity because the cost of racing had, had uh, risen so much that you needed commercial sponsorship for it to be viable. Did that change the driver's expectation of what they had to do? We now know, of course, drivers get media training and all. Did you start to get involved in the need to, um, I nearly said appease, I'll avoid that word, but, you know, interact with and uh, be supportive of the the sponsor's position as much as you're driving? No, not really. Um, uh, Maybe you would attend the odd sponsor 
uh, event during the year, maybe a media conference or some sort of promotion, whatever. But uh, 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 very, very few drivers had uh, um, sort of personal sponsorship. Uh, Jackie Stewart sort of led the way with that. Uh, and um, uh, he was managed by IMG. Um, but uh, generally, uh, drivers, the, any, any um, signage they had on their overalls was, uh, was part of their arrangement with the team, and it was a team sponsor. It wasn't a personal sponsor. This has been wonderful. I, I'm conscious of the time. But Howden Ganley, you and he started a company, Tiger. TI was for Tim, and uh, the GA was for Ganley Lee's uh, last name. And you built cars. Was that an evolution for you? Was that a, an, a, a thing that you enjoyed getting involved in? I guess as your Formula One career came to an end? Yes, well, probably 74, I'd lost my, um, I'd uh, lost my regular Formula One drive. And to get back in wasn't, I, I couldn't see that being viable. So many young ones coming through. So uh, I could see the end of my career ahead. I got married, three children, and I was looking for something else to do. And someone came to me with a proposal to um, build, uh, uh, build some Formula Ford cars, a small production line of Formula Ford cars, much the same as Ron Turanak had with Brabham's. And uh, I knew Howden Ganley. I was um, reasonably well. So I took the proposal to him, and uh, Howden came back to me a couple of days later and said, look, this looks quite viable. Um, I'm at the stage of my career as you are. Instead of uh, doing uh, this deal with the other chap, why don't uh, why don't you and I build cars? And so that's how it started. But it, it, I mean, we built in uh, we built around 600 uh, cars in, in five or 600 cars. So we had a line of Formula Ford cars. There was a small sports car, sports racing uh, class called For, uh, Sports 2000 that came in. We built. Uh, we were quite successful in that formula, um, so we had a small production line uh, of cars, um, and that sort of took up my life. But, but I have to say, you don't get rich building race cars. Oh, really? um, it was fantastic because you know you're building cars. I, we had a race team. We were winning races, so it was full on. But uh, for the amount of time and effort you put into it. It doesn't improve your bank account a long way. I can't complain. I can't complain. Did you get a similar or quite different feeling of satisfaction when your cars did well versus when you were driving? Was that a different uh, um, experience, emotion? Uh, very much so. But, you know, when I I'd made the decision to stop, so I didn't want to, uh, I wasn't, as you see many, at the time you saw many drivers, and got old, they weren't, they didn't have the skills they had when they were younger, and they just slowly moving backwards down the grid. I could see this coming, so I sort of moved into building cars and my satisfaction with the cars doing well. So it was still it was still interesting and helping young drivers uh, uh, come along because you could give them advice, testing with them, help them sort their, their, their the car out. So it was just part of an evolution. You have moved into, I guess, administration. Well, you know, being clerk, of course, for the Australian Grand Prix. Um, some people that uh, do those sorts of things are very uh, 
caught in the minutiae of um, regulation and so on. Um, how, how did you adapt to that? Where, where you had to, I guess, hold to the rules uh, as very much as, as possible. Was that an adaptation? No, I have to say it was, I mean, all I know, in, all my knowledge is motor racing. That's all I know, really. Um, so coming back to Australia in 84, and I had an opportunity to work for, for CAMS, as it was called then, um, was just really crossing over the fence, moving next door, so to speak. But it was an eye-opener. It was certainly an eye-opener. And I'd never really worked in a proper administration before, so all of that was a big learning curve for me. And those first few years was, was quite difficult. But I came back at a time when uh, we had a, some rounds of the World Sports Car Championship at uh, Sandown, um, we had uh, the Australian Touring Car Championship was sponsored by Shell. Channel 7 were broadcasting it. Um, the South Australian government brought the Grand Prix to Adelaide. So I just came at the right time. Just as so I, I explained, as I say, as motor racing in Australia, or motorsport in Australia, sort of exploding and becoming quite a mainstream sport. Um, so I just rode the crest of the wave, and uh, I, the first Grand Prix in Adelaide was uh, 1985. I was a clerk of the course, very little experience, but I had a good uh, a, a good uh, group around me, as I do today at uh, in, in Albert Park. You said that you had a great uh, adjustment. There were much more details and things than you'd been aware of, uh, and I guess a different uh, approach, a different key measures to achieve between being a driver and between administering an event or, or so on. What, what were some of the things there that you, you came to, had to come to grips with? Well, it, it, it was just a natural progression because I understood the other side of motor racing, being a competitor, being a participant. So you were just moving over then to just administrating it. So um, there were a few eye-openers for me, but generally, you are, if you understand motor racing, you built race cars, you'd run race teams, which I had, you understood the regulations and what you had to do and how it all worked. So it wasn't that difficult to move across the, across the line, so to speak, across the fence. The difficulty was, or the difference was, of course, working in an administration and working for somebody, whereas prior to that, I was my own boss. That comes to many people, and I, I guess <laughs> that takes adaptation. You've been given an OAM, and obviously you've given your whole life to motor racing, and that, Tim, it's been lovely to talk to you. I thank you very much for your time. David, uh, any time, and I always remember your name because David Brown, of course, is associated with Aston Martin. Yes, of course. Can I just uh, touch on that? When we uh, spoke a little before, um, a few weeks or so ago, Sometimes the dream isn't as clear as the reality. You've driven Aston Martins. I think a DB4 came up in conversation. Did the reality fit the dream? Well, I saw the Aston Martin racing uh, at Albert Park. I can't remember. David Mackay might have been racing it, but I thought this was the world's most beautiful car. And I think I even said to my mother, one of these days I'd love to own one of these cars. And maybe if I'm wealthy enough, I'll buy one from for you. When I went to England and worked for uh, the Chequered Flag, which was selling new cars or new car agency, but also used cars, 
I got to see a few Aston Martins. And in those days, they put a lot of salt on the roads uh, in England in the winter, in the snow. Uh, and to be honest, when I got to drive one, it wasn't quite what I, what I imagined. Um, so uh, that was a bit of an eye-opener, as you say. But, I mean, you look at an Aston Martin today. I mean, an Aston Martin today is one of the, one of the most beautiful-looking cars that you, uh, that you see on the road. Um, it is a great beauty. They, they always were, weren't they? They really had that yeah. style. But perhaps that's an evolution of cars as well as it is in motor racing and doing that. I, I note I can have a, a free attitude. I have no financial link to Aston Martin at all. <laughs> David Brown is not uh, an unusual name in the world. <laughs> Again, Tim, uh, it's, it's been lovely. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Overdrive is a radio and podcast program featuring road tests, interviews and features on motoring and transport. More information is available at drivenmedia.com.au and podcasts on Spotify or iTunes.